There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. This is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the Internet. We'll be talking to the legendary Abby Martin in the United States in just a few minutes' time about the identity politics war that was triggered by Elizabeth Warren in the hope of scuppering, scuttling, sinking Bernie Sanders and his flagship attempt to seize the... Democratic Party's nomination for president to run against Donald Trump, assuming Donald Trump is still standing in November. And we'll be talking to Abby Martin about that, too. Uh, the allegation is that the mild manner and actually altogether woke individual, Bernie Sanders, who was a feminist when Elizabeth Warren was a Republican, supporting Ronald Reagan, that well-known uh, supporter, champion, you could say, of women's politics. Well, at least he liked Margaret Thatcher. Now, Bernie has utterly rejected the charge that he deserves an ist, an ism, or an obia. But Elizabeth Warren gave it uh, everything she could in association, of course, with CNN. Has it worked? Well, Abby Martin will tell us that. I've no doubt she'll tell us, too, that the impeachment process, which has now begun... The trial in the Senate is about to begin. People are being sworn in. And President Trump has hired the lawyers of Jeffrey Epstein. What could possibly go wrong? Well, check the suicide watch. That's what I say. So we'll be talking about all kinds of Americana with the television royalty that is Abby Martin. On the subject of royalty, of course, our own ex-royalty is on its way to the United States. Maybe Abby has a point of view on what kind of film and television future the former royal highnesses Meghan and Harry now have lying in front of them as they no doubt move into Beverly Hills, uh, although whether they can afford it now that they've been stripped of virtually every penny of public funds here in Britain, maybe she'll have a view on that too. I'll be talking to the Honourable Craig Murray, the former British ambassador to Uzbekistan, uh, foreign office chief for a long time here in Britain, who has become one of the most significant voices, uh, striking a discordant note on many of the platforms of the prevailing narrative on the Scripple affair, uh, just for starters, and on many other things. He's a man of course, worth reading and worth listening to. But I give you this health warning. I profoundly disagree with his latest prescription, which is this, that Scotland doesn't need another referendum, that the Scottish National Party has the power, authority and moral legitimacy 
to simply declare Scotland to be an independent country. Again, I ask Craig what could possibly go wrong. Craig, rather riskily, uh, prayed in aid the process by which Yugoslavia broke apart. Well, let's hope Scotland doesn't end up like Yugoslavia. So he and I are on diametrically opposite uh, stances on the issue of Scottish independence. So when he comes up, you better fasten your seatbelts. It might be a rocky uh, ride on that subject. And we'll be talking to the French actor Guillaume Raveau. Guillaume is not just an actor, but an activist. And I'll be asking him what's going on on the streets of Paris. Because, well, I don't know and neither do you because none of our media ever gives it a minute on the national news and the newspapers uh, comprehensively ignore it too. We'll be talking to him about his television and film career, which in just five years has taken him on to everything from Paul Dark to Doctor Who, and he's even played King Arthur, the first French actor ever to do so. Not once, not twice, but three different times. He's a very fascinating man, one of the most interesting men I've met in recent times. And of course, as we tick towards the witching hour of Britain leaving the European Union, Everyone's fixated on whether Big Ben is going to bong or not. I actually don't give a toss whether Big Ben bongs or not, and I'm certainly not going to donate to the crowdfunding to buy a new hammer to hammer the bell to usher us into the future outside the European Union. But I am as committed to Brexit as I ever was. The Labour leadership contenders haven't quite gotten out of that famous river denial. The leading contender, the Blairite Keir Starmer, appears still to be leaving open the possibility of Britain rejoining the European Union. Good luck with persuading those on and behind the red wall as was, which turned out to be made of blamange, that we should rejoin the European Union. And a poll this week showed that almost two-thirds of Labour members still believe that their party policy of promising a second referendum rather than accept the results of the first and implement them was a good idea. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is denial. The donkey derby for the Labour leadership is still proceeding, albeit at snail's pace. Keir Starmer is still the horse in front. A tailor's dummy, I called him last night. I don't know if they call them that in the United States. I mean, he's statuesque. I mean, he's well turned out. The lights are on, but there's nobody home. And the Corbynite candidate, Rebecca Long-Bailey, is revealed in the Sunday Times today to have previously been employed in private finance initiative schemes in the NHS. Now, I'm fully aware that lawyers have to accept uh, the cases that come their way. They don't necessarily have to believe in them, uh, but it's a bit of a damaging blow. Not quite as damaging to the Corbynite cause as the further Sunday Times revelation today that the apostate 
the backstabber in chief, Tom Watson, is about to become Lord Tom Watson. No other prime minister or leader of the opposition would ever have nominated Tom Watson for a seat on the House of Lords. Such was the level of his disgrace. So disgraceful, he might not even now get through the Honours Committee, which scrutinises the suitability of nominees for a seat in the House of Lords. But Jeremy Corbyn, no less, the man whose back Tom was stabbing, has given him a place in the House of Lords, and thus, of course, continued his political life, which might otherwise have been at something of an end. Now, Tom Watson, just when you thought it was safe to get back into the water, Tom Watson is back, and he's back as Lord Tom Watson. Now, the government today announced that they're thinking of moving the House of Lords outside of London to what they presumably consider to be the provinces. Now, I'm not sure that the provinces are up to providing the necessary support services for the House of Lords, hookers, drug dealers, and so on. I'm not sure uh, that the provinces will quite be able to keep their lordships in the manner to which they have become accustomed. So I'll be asking you in a poll, where do you think we should make, move the House of Lords to? A, York, B, Birmingham, C, history. I vote C myself, but you may have other ideas. Tell me, you can vote on my Twitter feed. Now, there are all kinds of other issues abroad and at home here in London that we can discuss, and I'll be happy to take your calls. I want to make more space for calls this week than we traditionally do. So if you have a pen there, the number, if you're in the UK, is 02077 982 255. If you're in the United States, it's 001-757-744-4480. And you can tweet us, of course, at George Galloway, at RTUK News, or at GG Motes. I discovered to my a great pleasure that uh, thousands of you now follow that Twitter account, GG Motes, M-O-A-T-S. I'm particularly interested in the issues of the Middle East. And I note that a summit in Berlin is being held right now as I speak, and that President Putin is there, Chancellor Merkel is there, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is there, and President Macron is there. The plan is to bring the farcical situation in Libya, uh, which would be a farce if it wasn't so tragic, under some kind of control. You've heard me say before, Libya, which was once one country, one state with one government, however good or bad, is now no state at all. It's not a failed state, it's a non-state. It has three parliaments, it has four governments, four prime ministers. But in truth, General Haftar, and the Libyan National Army are now in control of almost all of the country. And the Western leaders are determined to stop the general from taking power because they think 
that he will be another Gaddafi. I'd like your point of view on that. My own point of view is that Libya needs one strong leader and government, just like it used to have. And so I hope this summit in Berlin is not going to, as it were, ossify the balkanization of Libya and halt what would in other circumstances have been a final uh, decision by the Libyan people to have a single state, have a single leader, have a single government. The situation in Iraq remains extremely tense. It's extremely tense in Lebanon. Uh, the war in Syria is moving to an end, but significant numbers of people are still losing their lives and their blood and their property to the jihadist fanatics who remain holed up under Western protection in one small part of Libya. As the Russian leadership said today, the war against terrorism in Syria is over. It's not entirely over, but it's very largely over. But the economic rebuilding of Syria cannot be begun whilst economic siege against the country is still laid by the Western countries who failed to overthrow the government in Damascus with their military campaign through proxies like that lovely Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the rest of the alphabet soup of Islamist extremism. Now in the United States, we march ineluctably towards the first of the challenges for the contenders for the Democratic Party's nomination. Cards on the table. I'm a Bernie Sanders man. I was last time. I believe if he'd been the candidate, we'd never have heard of President Donald Trump. He'd still be working with Piers Morgan on a new series of The Apprentice. But he was cheated out of the nomination. And the same people who cheated him are rather keen that he should be cheated again. Thus, I was appalled at the attack launched on Sanders by Elizabeth Warren in advance of the last uh, presidential candidate debate in which she, in terms, accused Bernie Sanders of being sexist, misogynist, and who knows, maybe some other ists, isms, and obias. The woke like to hand these titles out. The irony is, Bernie was woke decades before Elizabeth Warren was even on the Democratic side of the aisle when she was still a Republican. Bernie was championing the idea of women candidates, uh, including for the presidency. And indeed, Bernie Sanders even encouraged Elizabeth Warren last time to stand for the Democratic Party's nomination. And of course, uh, Donald Trump goes into the trial process in the Senate. So who will face Donald Trump or whether Donald Trump will be facing anyone at all is still very much up for grabs. So who better to talk to about it than our very own, uh, the remarkable presenter, writer, activist of the Empire Files, the wonderful Abby Martin, who joins us, I hope, now on Skype. Abby, wonderful to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, George. Let's start with the Elizabeth Warren attack on Sanders, uh, if we can, 
To what extent was it warranted? To what extent was it uh, uh, planned uh, with others? And what has been the impact of her attack? Well, George, you said it best. I mean, we're talking about two people's records of credibility standing up against each other. And one really doesn't hold very strong. I mean, we're talking about a woman who called herself a Republican for 50 years, giving speeches to the Federalist Society, while Bernie Sanders was co-founding the Progressive Caucus, fighting for women's rights, preaching about how women should run for president. Um, as you mentioned, 2016, he was trying to get Elizabeth Warren to run. She said, no, that's the only reason why he ran. Of course, he proceeded to do dozens of campaign events for Hillary Clinton. All of these things put together make it pretty remarkable and pretty far-reaching to actually imagine that Bernie Sanders would, in secret, um, with Elizabeth Warren, just say, yeah, yeah, you know what, uh, you're never going to win, toots. I mean, come on, let's face it. Um, Joe Biden is openly sexist, has eight women um, currently charging him with, uh, you know, sexual advances, uncomfortable touching. Um, he's been cr called Creepy Joe for quite some time. You don't really hear many think pieces about this. But to what extent was this planned? I think we pretty much well are well aware that this was planned for quite some time, George. It looks like it was planned for about a year for Elizabeth Warren to kneecap Bernie Sanders right before the Iowa caucus. And I think she had this plan all along. I think she was really upset Bernie Sanders ran in the first place against her. She, like Hillary Clinton, thought that she was the anointed one, thought that it was her turn, thought that everyone would fall in line and she could just kind of take Bernie Sanders supporters, adopt some of this progressive rhetoric while throwing all of us under the bus, of course, as soon as she got elected. Yeah. Um, and of course, leaking this story purposefully, right, to CNN, leaking it to CNN and then pretending like, oh, we don't know how it got out. I mean, come on, you leaked this on purpose to kneecap your so-called best friend <laughs> and most loyal advocate. And you know what, George, I think it didn't do anything. I think it actually backfired tremendously on this notorious liar. And we can get into her record of just lies. Um, but I think that look at his, his debate performance. Look at the fact that CNN tried to cynically undermine him in the debate. And he ended up making record donations in that first hour. I think the best that he's ever made in the entirety of the campaign. So I think people see through the cynical stunt. They see through this woke um, performance art. And they understand the issues and they understand that Bernie Sanders has a lifetime record of progressive activism and credibility that cannot be undermined by someone that we now know as a snake. Now, uh, when, uh, tell us, when's the first test of all this, Abby? When do the people start going to the polls? In about three weeks, we have the Iowa caucus. Uh, the California election is actually coming up really soon as well. Bernie Sanders is leading the national polls for the first time. And that's when you see these stunts come out. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is a hardcore political operative here. We can't, um, you know, we, we can't really, it's pretty obvious, right, that she's a hardcore political operative and she'll do anything to win. And the second that Bernie Sanders started uh, surpassing her in the polls, we saw these uh, dirty tricks come mm. out. And so I, I think that um, I think that it only helped him, George, because people are sick of this. What you don't think she's working in concert with uh, Creepy Joe, Sleepy Joe, <laughs> Sleepy Creepy Joe, uh, and that maybe they'll try and do uh, um, a, a double harness that. She'll be the VP pick of Joe Biden. She'll pledge her delegates to him. Is there any truth in that, do you think? 
I absolutely think that there was some sort of deal made. Look, Elizabeth Warren kind of rose to credibility in the progressive movement by fighting the bankruptcy law. I mean, Joe Biden spearheaded this effort. And so we were all kind of waiting with bated breath saying, when is Elizabeth Warren going to really not get in socket to sleepy Joe, creepy Joe in these debates? And instead, she turns and kneecaps her friends. So I think that there was some sort of deal made behind the scenes where Joe said, look, um, I'm considering you for VP, perhaps Treasury Secretary, and uh, you know, come out with this absurd ploy that that Bernie Sanders is a sexist. So let's try to siphon as many votes as we can, get a brokered convention. Of course, all of these absurd, super delegate. Um, rigged convention process here in the U.S., George, as we know from last time that Bernie Sanders got screwed over. The same thing could happen here. And I highly doubt that Elizabeth Warren's going to give her delegates to Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I highly doubt it, too. Let's uh, switch to uh, Donald Trump uh, for a minute. Uh, he's now facing trial uh, in the Senate. Is this just performance art, Abby, or is this a serious trial? Well, I think as we know, the Democrats have uh, voted for this near trillion dollar defense budget, given him carte blanche to um, expand militarism, expand the U.S. empire around the world. And, and that's exactly what he's done. So what he should be impeached over, of course, is war crimes, what he's done in Israel-Palestine, which is abominable, the Yemen war, this mass starvation, so many things, right? The kids cage at the border. I mean, the list goes on and on, the Muslim ban. Of course, there's such a bipartisan consensus on 99% of all yeah. of these horrific policies yeah. that he's never going to be impeached for this. So I think it is very astounding that the Democrats have launched this campaign. And of course, you have to understand the timing of this too. Nancy Pelosi handing over the articles of impeachment in the Senate at the same time that Bernie Sanders should be campaigning in Iowa and while the while the time is nigh, right? And so having him now try to stay in DC and be um, and and have testimony for the Senate impeachment hearing, I think could also be a way to undermine Another dirty the trick, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, how will it go, Abby? He can't be found guilty if the Republicans uh, hold firm, will they? I think the Republicans are going to hold firm. Look, they hitched their wagon to Donald Trump. I think that in 2016, you saw both parties across the aisle really wanting him, wanting Hillary to run. You know, we saw the Fortune 500 CEOs, Democrats, Republicans alike saying, good God, we cannot have this clown in office. But now that Trump has won and has been in office for two years, I think the Republican Party was almost on the verge of imploding before Trump really um, took it away. And I think that now they know they need him. They need this character to hitch their wagons to, to, to gin up his base of support to help them uh, win re-elections in their own races. And so I think that to go against the party, to go against Trump would be um, a, a big uh, mistake for these Republican candidates. And I think that they know that they need Trump in order to secure their positions. So I don't think we're going to see any Republicans go against this, um, even if you have clear and blatant evidence, which I absolutely think you do, of Trump breaking the law <laughs> with grounds for impeachment. You're just not going to see it happen, George. Now, uh, let's talk about one of the things that he ought to be being impeached for, if impeachment is in order at all. Uh, and that's the uh, very clear and obvious act of international terrorism that he carried out in Baghdad just a couple of weeks ago. It's abundantly clear now that the uh, reason given for that, that General Qasem Soleimani presented a clear and present danger 
to the United States, its people, its property uh, abroad, that he was planning attacks on embassies. All of that has fallen away now uh, because even the defense secretary has uh, conceded that he never saw any such evidence and no such evidence has been produced. So it was a cold-blooded uh, murder. It was a premeditated, cold-blooded murder carried out by the United States. And that, by anybody's standards, is what people should be talking about. However, it's all gone quiet on the Iran track. Should we be suspicious about that or hopeful about that? Is something going on in the background, do you think? Well, I think that there's something to say about Trump's first term, maybe um, playing it safely to a certain extent. Look, Trump has been putting us on the brink of war with Iran since he got elected, um, hiring these extremist warmongers like John Bolton, Mike, um, Mike Pompeo, who've been salivating at the idea of a war with Iran for decades. We have to understand that not only did he dismantle the nuclear deal immediately when he got in, he also added 800 800 sanctions to asphyxiate the Iranian economy. If you look at this compared to the rest of the world, it's just an absolutely astounding amount. I can't imagine what these sanctions are doing. I mean, of course, that's aside from circling around with warships, tens of thousands of military personnel sending unmanned drones in their airspace, and of course, threatening them every other day on uh, you know this giant um, psychopathic baby's Twitter account. So all of that aside, the act of war, this clear war crime, violation of international law, taking us to a new level, to the brink of full-fledged war with Iran, this unprecedented terrorist act, uh, like you called it, um, the assassination of General Soleimani in broad daylight at the Baghdad airport was such a blatant, flagrant act of aggression, such a belligerent violation. It was only because of the Iranian re retaliation that was de-escalatory and killed no Americans re in response. I think that we're at the moment that we're at today, which is that we're not in a full-fledged war. Now, how is this going to affect Trump in the election? Look, I think Trump ran on being tough on Iran, we have to remember that even though he spoke out of both sides of his mouth saying end the endless wars, he also ran on a war against Muslims, essentially, running on killing terrorists and their families, running on essentially a torture program. And so his base, I think, has actually become emboldened by this measure because they can look at what he did and actually count it as a win-win. They can say, look, he took out a terrorist, right? Um, because even you have the Democrats conceding on this point, of course, all of the establishment media conceding yeah. the fact that Soleimani was was a terrorist responsible for the deaths of thousands uh, of people, hundreds of Americans, based on nothing. George, this is literally removing the agency of Iraqis living under brutal occupation. Yeah, brutal I, occupation it's the Iraq. opposite of the truth. Soleimani <laughs> was the hammer of the terrorists. He was the one fighting ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that his base will look at this and say, well, he killed a terrorist, right? And he also prevented war with Iran. And they don't understand how much on the precipice of war we still are, George. But I think that what you saw with the Democratic Party establishment and the media establishment, this framing, this limited scope of debate where Iran is the oppressive country, right? And all that was debated is, well, what can we do about it? Trump just did something bad strategically. And we all have to concede the fact that Soleimani is a threat. And if they concocted some bizarre threat that actually, just like WMDs, right, that Soleimani was in fact plotting to attack our embassies, you can bet that the Democratic establishment would line up and, and support that, that 
next drive to war immediately, immediately. And not only did they concede with this vote for a trillion dollar defense budget, they conceded with all the talking points about Soleimani. So in this next presidential election, if Bernie Sanders does not win. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. For God forbid, um, Trump can say, you guys just gave me credibility for my talking points. You admitted that Soleimani was a dangerous terrorist and that we needed to do something about him, right? So they cannot actually go after him mm. about this, George. Um, wow. So Bernie Sanders was the only candidate that actually called an emergency press conference. He took this very, very seriously. He actually tried to use his uh, his congressional power in the Senate to try to stimmy um, the executive power uh, to go to war unilaterally. Unfortunately, I think that we all know um, Congress, again, would line up if they concocted some sort of fake imminent threat. So I think that Americans are sick of this. We saw tens of thousands of Americans in the street opposing this. There's a National Day of Action this Saturday, January 25th, to oppose what Trump is doing to drive us to war because he added sanctions again, which is an act of war. And also this all started from the fact that an American contractor died, right? Well, why are there American contractors still there? Why are there tens of thousands of troops still in the Middle East? It is a it is a tinderbox, and it's just a matter of time before something else happens. And that's what I'm worried about. We need to get all troops out, close all bases, and that's the only thing that will bring peace and security in the region. Now, finally, uh, before I ask you what you're uh, doing these days, uh, let's talk, if we can, about the Israel-Palestine uh, track. Uh, Trump has been the most slavish uh, supporter <laughs> of uh, Netanyahu. He has validated and moved the embassy, the first uh, president actually to do so, though they all promised to do so while campaigning. He has moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, thus bestowing uh, U.S. recognition on the illegal occupation of East Jerusalem, which is and legally internationally will always be uh, Palestinian-occupied territory. He validated the Israeli seizure of the Golan Heights and its looting for its oil and gas assets underneath its uh, soil. He 
went there and has sent his statespeople there to uh, confirm Netanyahu's annexation or Israel's annexation of the uh, Golan Heights. Does this mean uh, that the supporters of Israel in the United States, some of them Jewish, but most of them evangelical Christians, uh, that, that Trump will harvest votes uh, for all of this? Or are Jewish people at least in the United States returning to the uh, traditional loyalty that they had to progressive politics, especially with Bernie Sanders being himself Jewish. That's a great point, George. Yes, as you mentioned, this kind of fascist partnership between Netanyahu and Trump has exposed, uh, I think, the real face of Zionism to a lot of people who call themselves progressives. You have that phrase, I'm liberal except for Palestine. You're not liberal. You're not progressive if you support an apartheid state uh, that's besieging millions of people and, and holding millions more under a brutal military occupation. Um, I think that that's been exposed for what it is. A lot uh, of the progressive movement has shifted on this issue. You see Bernie Sanders himself back in 2016 could barely muster the phrase disproportionate when it came to the 2014 Gaza massacre. Mm. This year, he's talking about withholding aid. He's talking about withdrawing illegal settlements back to the 1967 borders. That's actually something Hamas was willing to negotiate in their new charter. That's pretty dramatic. And that's way farther than any other politician is willing to entertain. A lot of people just have this mealy mouth condemnations of the racism and Netanyahu without actually acknowledging that the entire system is right wing, fascist and racist to its core. And that the most recent election in Israel between Benny Gantz and Netanyahu was essentially between Trump and Trump. <laughs> We're talking about two war criminals that yeah. oversaw the murder of you know, thousands and thousands of civilians. So um, I do think that it is a really strong base of Christian evangelicals who, again, are understanding that Trump is the one who will bring their agenda to fruition. Mike Pence is lurking in the background. But I do think progressive Jews and also you see the walkouts on birthrights. Um, trips. You have um, a lot of organizations here that are comprised of progressive Jewish people who are standing up and saying, we do not adhere to this. We do not um, pledge allegiance to the state of Israel. And this does not speak for Judaism. Um, and you even see Trump's recent executive order that's basically conflating criticism of Israel to anti-Semitism, George. And I was victim to this anti-BDS movement, you know, with my new film, Gaza Fights for Freedom, of course, my, my um, open pro-Palestine activism, I was scheduled to speak at the University of Georgia Southern. And I was uh, given a pro-Israel boycott pledge saying I, if I wanted to speak there, I had to pledge allegiance and pledge loyalty to the state of Israel. And I just couldn't believe my eyes because I knew that this was happening in 27 states to independent contractors. I had no idea that this was for speakers at universities. Of course, I refused to sign. And I was dropped from the conference. The entire conference fell apart. Ironically, the conference title was about media literacy. So this is a fear campaign going on. This is something Something that Trump has exacerbated, and we need to stand up and not cower to these acts of censorship that are blatant violations of our First Amendment rights. So the document you were asked to sign demanded that you explicitly oppose peaceful boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And if you didn't sign it, you are not permitted to speak on a university campus. Is that right? 
That is correct. <laughs> Unbelievable. That is correct. Yeah. And 27 states, George, for this happening. And all we hear is kind of this hyperbolic notion of conservatives being censored on campus. Meanwhile, there is such a blatant and egregious act to censor pro-Palestine activism and to conflate it with anti-Semitism and even Nazism. Um, and this recent executive order just dramatically escalates that situation to, to actually threaten students with expulsion, um, if they if they do uh, move forward with their BDS activism. And I think wow. that really is a testament to how scared Israel is of this grassroots pressure mounting akin to South Africa, which we know the BDS movement really took down apartheid there. That's the only thing that's working. That's an international movement um, that is successful. And that's why it has our, our bipartisan um, political consensus and Israel so terrified of this. And when you have Sheldon Adelson essentially bankrolling the entire GOP, um, who's also saying he wanted to nuke Iran, it's a very scary path ahead if we see Donald Trump winning a second term. Indeed. Now, how can people see your magnificent film? You can check it out on GazaFightsForFreedom.com. You can rent it on Vimeo or buy a DVD there. I encourage everyone to check it out. I worked with uh, filmmakers on the ground in Gaza filming the Great March of Return. Of course, we know hundreds have been mowed down by Israeli snipers over the last two years, all sparked with the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem. Um, incredible film, harrowing footage, and it really just documents the uh, Israeli war crimes and violations of the Geneva Conventions against disabled press, medics, and children that are being wantonly um, committed by Israeli forces, George. Your courage, your ability, your star quality, uh, they often leave me speechless. Abby Martin, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother thank you of so all much. talk shows. God bless thank you. Thank you so much, George. God bless Bye. you. Thank you. Abby Martin, my goodness. If you haven't seen her film yet, GazaFightsForFreedom.com or on Vimeo or on the usual platforms. Trust me, you'll thank me for the advice. This, I told you, is the mother of all talk shows. Craig Murray is a prince amongst men. He is a former ambassador, as I said earlier, but he's also an author, a broadcaster, an activist of the very first rank. And unfortunately, from my point of view, he's also a strong supporter of Scottish independence. So far, so good. There are lots of those. At least 45% of the people of Scotland at the last time of asking were in favour of that Scottish independence. But Craig has moved from a position that is held by the Scottish nationalist leadership that they need another referendum, preferably this year, and that that referendum uh, should be held even though it's only uh, five years, six years since the last one, and that a referendum is required in order for Scotland to leave the Union uh, of the United Kingdom. Craig has gone beyond that. He believes that the SNP have the right already to declare unilaterally Scotland's independence from Britain. I said when he first floated it that it was a very dangerous prescription indeed. Maybe I misunderstood it, in which case we have given 
the Honourable Craig Murray the opportunity to lay out his ideas on the way forward on what we'll call the Scottish question. Right now, he joins me on Skype. Craig, thank you very much indeed for joining us. If I've characterised your position correctly, uh, please explain it. If I've made any errors, please correct them. <laughs> thank you, George. Um, no, I think that was a, uh, a reasonably clear exposition of what I've been saying. Um, there is no requirement for a referendum uh, before you become an independent country. The majority of countries in the world actually achieved their independence uh, in the lifetime of, of, of you and I. Um, and very few of them had a referendum in order to do so. Um, and the domestic legislation of the country you are leaving uh, is not the determining factor of whether or not uh, you are independent. Uh, Westminster can't veto uh, Scottish independence any more than the Soviet Union could veto Estonian, Lithuanian or, or, or Latvian uh, independence. Uh, independence is... Uh, 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 Independence is something to which a nation has a right, a right of self-determination, should its people wish to determine that right. And the, the power from which you are seceding can't simply block it by saying, no, you can't have a referendum. Now, of course, I, I would prefer uh, to have another referendum. But if Johnson won't give another referendum to which uh, the UK state will agree, uh, then we may well find ourselves having to look at alternative ways of, of going forward. And the uh, one alternative way I have suggested is that we convene a national assembly based of every Scot who has been elected in a proper election at a national level. Uh, so that would include MEPs, MPs and MSPs. You convene them all together uh, as a National Assembly, uh, and that National Assembly moves to repeal the Act of Union. Uh, we could then follow that up by having a confirmatory referendum, but a confirmatory referendum held after we have declared uh, independence. And that's a process uh, which would be uh, perfectly in line with international law and would be quite in line with the practice adopted uh, in most states uh, which have become independent, where it's their local legislature which has made the declaration. There are major differences, of course, between countries leaving the former Soviet Union, uh, which had held them as part of the Soviet Union, perhaps against their will, certainly without their authorization uh, of that status, and Scotland, which not only is a voluntary member of the United Kingdom, but as recently as five years ago, confirmed its wish to remain within the United Kingdom. The Soviet Union could be said to have been holding Latvia in bondage. No one can credibly claim that Britain is holding Scotland in bondage because Scotland voted to remain in the Union just five years ago. A great deal has changed in, in that five years. And of course, Scotland had two 
uh, referenda, which had conflicting results and which had a similar level of turnout. They had had one referendum in which it voted to remain part of the United Kingdom. It subsequently had a second referendum uh, in which it voted to remain part of the European Union and did so by a much higher majority than it voted to remain part of the United Kingdom. Now, it's two national referenda uh, which, had they remained uh, compatible, uh, would each have a valid result. But unfortunately, what has subsequently happened uh, is, of course, it's impossible to honour the result of both referenda. So which do you honour? Well, the, the, the obvious answer is to have another referendum to find out. But Boris Johnson uh, is denying us that. Um, I think there is a, a genuine um, a, a genuine comparison between the United Kingdom and the Soviet Union. I think they were both empires at the last gasp, empires which were falling apart. And I think the United Kingdom is an empire uh, which is falling apart. And I think, uh, sadly, my, my own view, and I, I know this is one of the very few subjects on which we disagree, but my own view is that the United Kingdom has to be destroyed uh, because the imperialist and racist attitudes uh, which underlie so much of the British establishment and British politics will only actually really be scrubbed out if you dismantled the institution of the United Kingdom itself. Of course, Scotland was a leading edge of the British Empire, far from being a colony uh, of Britain. Scotland helped to colonize a quarter of the people of the world and was often in the front line of murdering them and holding them down. Yet you uh, characterize Scotland as a victim of an empire when in fact it was a co-criminal in that imperial adventure. Well, um, there's a great deal of truth in that, but, but um, many Scots were uh, implicated in the crimes of empire. But um, equally, uh, the Roman Empire uh, eventually had, for example, African emperors. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Africa <laughs> or the North Africa was not a colony of the Roman Empire. Of course it was. But the fact that you know elites and others and military people are co-opted into the ruling of empires, something which has happened in empires everywhere, always. It does, um, uh, Stalin was a Georgian, not a Russian, but he was uh, a part of the uh, Russian, later Soviet empire. Empires co-opt people from the periphery into the metropolitan. That's how empires work, always has done. It doesn't mean Scotland was not effectively a colony. So, yeah, to, I, I want to ask you that. To be clear, you yep. say that Scotland is a colony, albeit one that voted just five years ago to remain in Britain. Yes, uh, that, that is absolutely my position. Um, my position is that Scotland has been colonised. And like, like all colonies, Scotland has had the wealth sucked out of it for centuries and, and taken down to London. If you look at the comparative economic state of Scotland uh, compared to uh, similar countries like Ireland, Denmark, Spain, Norway, compared to countries of a similar size and similar geographical location, uh, Scotland is far poorer. And that's because 
talented Scots like your very good self uh, are uh, sucked down uh, to work in London. We have, at the time of the Treaty of Union, Scotland had a population that was one third that of England. It now has a population that is one tenth uh, that of England. And the reason for that impoverishment and the reason uh, for that depopulation is, is one of colonial dominance. Now, these are uh, very uh, important and interesting uh, topics, but let's move forward from, from the Roman Empire and the points I made equally historical uh, to the current. Uh, I'm with you, by the way. Uh, Scotland has the right to hold a referendum any time that it chooses. Uh, if it chooses too often to do so, it will uh, be laying itself open to the law of diminishing returns. If you go too often to the well, you might find there's less to drink. Uh, but no one but Scotland can decide when to exercise its right of self-determination. So I'm with you on that. But you must see the strength of the argument that Johnson didn't make but ought to have made that, well, we, of course, can have another referendum, but not this year, because Britain is still in the process of withdrawing from the European Union, as it was mandated to do uh, by the 2016 uh, EU referendum. And once we've got that out of the way, we'll know better what the shape of Brexit Britain will be, what its prospects will be, what its relationship to the rest of the world will be, and that will be a better, more informed time to have a referendum. Moreover, he should have said to Nicola Sturgeon, you'll be able to stand for election for the Scottish Parliament in 2021 on the platform of demanding a new independence referendum, and if you get a majority in the Parliament, then we'll sit down and negotiate the terms of a second independence referendum. Johnson didn't make that argument, but if he had, would you have seen any force in it? I would see very little force in it. Um, in the first instance, there have been four national elections in Scotland since the independence referendum, and the SNP has won every one of those elections. There's been a pro-independence majority elected in every one of those Scottish parliamentary or UK parliamentary elections. And the SNP were elected to a majority in the Scottish Parliament together with the Greens, uh, who had the same policy, on the, under a proportional representation system, uh, were elected on the platform uh, that if there were material change in circumstances, and it was made perfectly plain that that meant if the UK leaves the European Union, then there would be a second independence referendum. So we already have a, a parliamentary majority in the Scottish Parliament elected on that basis after the last independence referendum. Uh, so you're asking to repeat a mandate you, you, you already have. Uh, but the other point is, of course, that your, you know, your argument doesn't get around this problem of the conflicting referenda. And Scotland voted uh, very strongly uh, in favour of leaving the European Union. Now, my, my own view is that the SNP went down a complete blind alley, uh, because I don't believe that the SNP had any right to participate in a campaign to keep England in the EU. 
Uh, because if you believe that Scotland has a right to stay in the EU because Scotland voted to stay in the EU, you have also to believe uh, that England and Wales have a right to leave the EU because they plainly voted to leave the EU. And I think for, for years, these waters have been muddied uh, by the SNP, instead of talking about independence, wasting time attempting to keep the whole of the UK in the European Union, which was anti-democratic, which they had no right to do, and which you believe in Scottish independence, if true believes in Scottish independence, would, would think that it's, it's no business of Scotland to try to thwart England's desires for, for a separate foreign policy for England. Now, uh, let's look at the practicalities if your prescription was to be followed. I know that it's common ground between us that if Scotland is to become an independent state, it should be done peacefully and calmly and without acrimony uh, and uh, with uh, a consensus uh, that that is the best way forward. Plainly, no such consensus currently exists. I was speaking in East Kilbride last night. Uh, there were uh, well over 300 people uh, in the hall. I laid out my views, which are entirely contrary to yours. Uh, they, were, uh, they were resoundingly supported. It's clear that a very large number of people in Scotland, whether more or less than 50%, who knows, but a very large number of people in Scotland do not want to leave Britain. If you were to unilaterally declare yourselves independent of Britain, you think that would not be contested by significant numbers of people in Scotland? And if it were contested, that would be the end of any hope that this could be done peacefully and calmly, wouldn't it? Um, you can contest things in a, uh, in a peaceful way. I mean, my own view is we're going to end up having to have a referendum. Uh, whether in order to get that referendum, we have to declare independence first, then hold our own referendum because the UK state blocks it, uh, or, or whether we could have one first is, you know, uh, a matter of the position we're forced into. Um, but there does ultimately have to be a test of public opinion. Uh, and I perfectly accept that. And I also accept, you know, that there is uh, a strong unionist uh, tradition uh, in Scotland, uh, some aspects of which are, are, are British nationalist in, in not the most pleasant way. I'm, I'm sure the people you spoke to were, were coming from the socialist brotherhood and solidarity side of that tradition, which, mm. frankly, is, is, is a rather shrinking base because the vast majority of the membership and voters of the Labour Party in Scotland have defected to the, to the SNP. We, these are debates we, we want to have, but we can't be stopped from having them, stopped from all movement and stopped from independence simply by Boris Johnson uh, saying so. You think if you have a referendum to leave Britain that this time you'll get a majority? Because all those parliamentary stats that you rolled out are, of course, all accurate, but they don't change the fact that in no election has the SNP gained more than 50% of the vote. In fact, more people in Scotland voted for Brexit than voted for the SNP in the current Scottish Parliament. You think things have so changed that this time the Scots would vote 
with a majority in a referendum to leave Britain? Well, that's, uh, I mean, it's true numerically more people voted for Brexit, but that was on a much, a much higher turnout. Um, uh, far less people voted for Brexit than voted for uh, Scottish independence uh, in, in the two referenda, which, which are, were on comparable uh, turnouts. I, um, I do believe, I, I'm actually extremely confident uh, that uh, independence would win in the referendum. We started the last referendum campaign on between 30 and 32 percent in the polls. Over the course of the campaign, uh, we, you know, we finished on 45 percent, 46 percent. And that's a 14 percent gain during the course of the campaign. I, I fully expect to see a gain of a similar magnitude um, again. And we only need a, a very small gain uh, to get over the line. People have had enough. In Scotland, people do not vote Tory. There's about one third of the population. There's the absolute maximum the Tory vote would be. And, and it generally settles at about a quarter, which is about where it was uh, last month. And uh, we just don't want to keep being ruled by the Tories. And the, you know, the alternative to independence, unfortunately, is continuing Tory rule. Decades of Tory rule we've been through. We, we have minimum of five years more Tory rule to come and possibly, possibly more after that. The only way for Scotland to actually get a government it votes for uh, is to become independent. Lastly, to whose responsibility is it that the Scottish National Party have made these strategic errors. You see, I listen and follow uh, much of what Jim Sillers uh, says uh, on this uh, subject, a man I, I greatly admire. And Alex Salmond, uh, before Nicola Sturgeon, uh, was the, the main leader of the nationalist movement in the country. Do you hold Nicola Sturgeon responsible for the strategic error that you when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM to refer to on the issue of Brexit? Um, yes, I do. In my view, uh, Nicola Sturgeon's leadership is insufficiently focused on independence itself and is focused much more on other issues, uh, in particular uh, the European Union, uh, also in, if you like, maintaining the SNP's powerful position as a party within the devolution settlement, rather than going hell-bent for independence, and also on various issues of um, identity politics, uh, with which the SNP has been very keen to identify. There seems to have been a move to position the SNP as the favourite party of the Guardian newspaper, uh, rather than actually uh, a party that campaigns for independence. Uh, and I do believe uh, that the SNP needs new leadership much more focused on independence itself. Well, I, of course, I recognize much of that. 
But the people I spoke to in East Kilbride last night would have the absolutely opposite view. They would say this. When the SNP came to power 10 years ago, if they had spent more time picking up, emptying the bins more efficiently, maintaining Scotland's education system and its health system more efficiently, more people might have been prepared to trust them with state power. But as you and I both know, Scotland, whose education system was once famous throughout the world, now has a worse educational record than England, God forbid. Its health service in a more parlous state, even than the English health service. And as the union that organizes the bin collection pointed out in very powerful pictures and video last week, even in Nicola Sturgeon's own constituency, they can't pick up the garbage efficiently. They have failed on the bread and butter issues because of their obsession with constitutional matters. That's the view that's widely held in Scotland. And it's a view that's widely pushed uh, by the media. I'm, I'm genuinely not sure it's true. Uh, my own view is that these are managerial issues and that whoever is attempting to manage public services anywhere in the UK under a Tory government is going to struggle uh, with the dreadful financial restrictions of austerity. And there are going to be problems. The SNP would argue that they have managed these things better. But my own view is that neither the Labour Party nor the SNP uh, are full of people of ill will or of particular competence one over the other, and that everybody is, is attempting to do their, their best. And I think arguments for managerial competence, uh, which both sides argue strongly are in their favour, are a distraction and an irrelevance. And for me, this is the trap of devolution. If you accept the devolution settlement, and you become, in effect, managers of austerity, because you can only work with what the Tory government give you, uh, and you have to implement cuts the Tory government force upon you, then you are going to become subject to these kinds of criticism. The only way out of that trap uh, is to give up on, on devolution, which is, frankly, a blind alley, which has sucked the energies of the Scottish political class. You have to give up on devolution and look to actual independence. And, and I want to make one point to you quite strongly. Personally, I, and, and I'm not decrying, I know, of course, health services and sanitation and things are terribly important. But for me, myself, I'm much more interested in nobody being able to send our children to fight and die in illegal wars of imperial occupation than I am in how often the dustbins are emptied. Yeah, of course, that's a powerful uh, point. Uh, it's also worth making uh, the alternate point, though, that Scotland has managerially failed under the SNP, despite having more public money per head, per year to spend than people in England have. £1,702 per person per year. So the Scottish government's got more money, even from the Tories, than local authorities have had in England, but their services are worse. I'm genuinely not convinced the services are worse. I mean, having lived 
having moved back permanently to Scotland five or six years ago, the services are definitely better here in Edinburgh than they were where, where I was living before in Ramsgate. And the health service is definitely better here, you know, purely from the experience of me and my family in getting doctor's appointments, getting into hospital and all that kind of thing. I'm, I actually don't recognize the picture which, which you're painting. Um, and I know it is a picture which you know, the media work very hard on painting. Uh, I genuinely don't think there's that much difference. I really don't. I think the claims that the SNP are the greatest managers of public services and managed to mitigate the problems fantastically are overblown. What is true is that we have managed to keep free prescriptions. We've managed to keep no university tuition fees for our students. Uh, we've managed to have free social care. All those things are much, much better than they are down in England and reflect a consensus, a much more left-wing consensus in politics here about what the state should be providing. An awful lot of what the Labour Party was promising at the last election is what we already do here in Scotland. Honourable Craig Murray, thanks for your contribution. I'm sure it will spark ideas and arguments for the rest of the evening. Thanks for joining us on the Mother Thank of All Talk Shows. Thank, Thank you. you. We've got a second poll now for the last hour. What will Meghan and Harry do next? A, join the cast of The Crown. That's not a bad idea, by the way. B, celebrity Big Brother. Don't do it. Take my advice. Or C, avoid the limelight. You can vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Now, on the subject of cast and films, I'm joined now by a man I've come to greatly admire. In a relatively short time, he has become a film and television star of note. And, moreover, he's done it as a Frenchman living in England, which doesn't happen often. Uh, to be fair, it doesn't often happen the other way around. There are not many big English stars in French media. But this is a man who's played King Arthur, for goodness sake. The legendary King Arthur, and not just once either. This is a man that's been in Doctor Who. A man that was watching Paul Dark, series one, and told his wife, if there's a season two, I'm going to be in it. As indeed he was, as indeed he was in Paul Dark, series three. He's appeared in a multitude now of really important films, some of which are now beginning to uh, appear on the screen or will be in the next few weeks. But he's not just an actor, he's an activist. And that's why I'm going to start talking to Guillaume Riveau, not about art, not about film, but about politics, industrial politics. Because I'm watching, though most people are not, because I watch RT, but anyone watching any of the mainstream media don't even know what I'm talking about. I've watched millions of French people marching under the slogan of Macron, go, demit office, the French are giving a lesson to working-class people all around the world of how never to give up your precious rights that you fought for and won. What is it about the French? Why are you so militant? Good evening, George. Good evening Thank to you. <laughs> Thank you for having me on the show. This is great. Well, with regards to what's going on in France, uh, you know, I've been in this country for 27 years. A lot of things have changed in France over the last three decades. You know, the, the political landscapes, the infrastructure, some of the laws and everything. But there is one thing, George, 
that, that will never change, ever, and that it is the spirit and the heart of the French people. You know, since many, many centuries, and probably look since the revolution in, in 1789, you know, there is a stigma about the French that they might be a little arrogant at times. You know, I, I won't go that far. I think that the French are very proud people. The French are very proud of their history. They're very proud of their culture. They're very proud of their way of life. But the French are very, as well, uh, uh, family-orientated, like a true Mediterranean kind of like uh, uh, a system. So if anything or anyone comes in between their way of life, or if the French, a French woman or a French or a Frenchman feels threatened by an individual or by a system, then I believe that uh, the French will do something about it. Indeed, uh, and uh, it's almost breathtaking the uh, indefatigability of the French. 60 weeks the yellow vests have been out on the streets and now there is a general strike of the whole working class against the neoliberal so-called reforms. I'm old enough to know when reforms used to be a good thing, now they're a bad thing. If somebody says, I've got some reforms in mind, you can be sure they mean they're going to take something off you that you have already. They're going to change something uh, against your interests. Most people in Germany, most people in Britain, have accepted things over the last three decades that the French still absolutely regret. So I don't think the French are arrogant, but if they were, they'd have that to be arrogant about, to be proud about, that they stand up for their rights. And you're right, it's been going on for centuries. Let me ask you about this Macron, because he was briefly in the British media a kind of darling. He was a shorter Tony Blair. Uh, he was uh, coming to power uh, with a new broom to sweep clean uh, that which was wrong in France. He doesn't look so shiny today, does he? I mean, he was chased out of a theater in Paris uh, just 48 hours ago. What is it about him that gets up the goat of the French people so much? Well, remember during the election a couple of years back, I think it was a couple of years ago, I think that uh, Emmanuel Macron went through because he was uh, uh, standing against uh, uh, Le Pen. He was standing against a fascist. Uh, indeed. What a choice. So, what a choice. A choice. So that, I think, is the reason why he went through. And uh, the honeymoon period mm. is well, truly over. Mm. And, uh, you know, Macron represents, like you said before, the elite. And uh, the French people, you know, they're hardworking people. And uh, if, as an example, like we talk about the pension reforms right now, if someone works hard all of their life and they set themselves a target, and that target is that they're going to retire at the age of 62, and then someone like Emmanuel Macron could come along and says, you know what, I'm going to change everything and it's going to be 64, then they will, they will say something about it. Yeah, because they know that these kind of reforms have a sort of mission creep built into them. Once you've taken people's expected retirement away, uh, what's your next reform? 
what you're going to force them to do or stop them uh, from doing uh, in, the, in the future. Let me ask you about the yellow vests. I know why the so-called mainstream media doesn't cover the yellow vests, because they don't want it spreading to other countries. But I don't know why the so-called left and so-called liberals and so-called progressives have also completely turned their back on a movement which for 60 weeks has been confronting not just neoliberal politics in the shape of Macron, but have been beaten, have been gassed, batoned, shot with rubber bullets, had their eyes knocked out, their limbs knocked off, and yet you don't get a word of support from the TUC here in Britain, from the Labour Party here in Britain, from the Guardian newspaper. Why is that? Well, what's been happening over there has been absolutely shocking, to be honest with you. Uh, I remember tweeting some pictures of firefighters. You know, people, people, you know these, these firefighters, they save people's lives. And you see these, these, uh, these horrific pictures of firefighters fighting with cops. French cops in the streets. And, uh, you know, with regards to, to what, what you were saying, look, if the way I look at it is that if in France you have a French president that will be a socialist president in the mood of General Corbyn or maybe in the mood of a George Galloway, hmm. yes. Monsieur Mélenchon is my man, I or love Mr. him. Monsieur Mélenchon is a great guy, but if that would be the case, then the scenario would be completely different. And I think that you will see all of these things that are happening in France on all of the mainstream media. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, like you see the stuff that's going on in Hong Kong and Venezuela and Chile and Cuba, you know, and that would be happening in France. But there is, like you said earlier on, there is, uh, you don't get to hear this on the mainstream media. It's unbelievable. Because the mainstream media, you know, who they are owned by and mm. what the propaganda they're trying to mm. give to people. Basically, they're feeding the populace what they want them to hear, yeah. you know. So I think that this is the problem that we've got here, you know. Now, look, uh, I, I gave a hint of it earlier to the audience. Uh, you are genuinely a truly extraordinary man. You were not an actor and you, you decided to be one. And you're not a teenager. You're not even in your 20s, but you decided, I'm going to be an actor. And now I can hardly switch on uh, without seeing you. And I'm, I'm eagerly anticipating some of the films you've got in the pipeline. How does that work that someone of your age who've had other careers, you say, I'm going to be on television, I'm going to make films. What kind of drive does that represent? You need to have a special mindset. And you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, for your viewers to know how it happened for me is that uh, I started acting at the age of 42. And I'm nearly 47 now. So I was watching Paul Dark season one on the television with my, my wife. And then it just happened in my mind. I know I just had the click in my mind. And I said, look, if there is a season two of this, I mean it. And six months later, I was filming season two in Charlestown uh, in the front of hundreds of people that were watching the show from, uh, from up there, you know. And uh, I wasn't really happy uh, with the edit. Uh, so I said, I'll be back in season three. And in season three, it was great because I got to play the Vicomte de Sombreuil. 
uh, alongside all of the main cast. I was a friend of the Duchesse. We got to rescue Dr. Ennis uh, with Rose Podak in France. It was a, it was a great thing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's... See, I can see you as a Vicomte. Mm. But how did you get to be King Arthur? Well, you know, I just got cast into the role, my friend. Maybe it's the look. <laughs> you do look uh, kingly, I must say. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because on Wednesday I'm doing another playlet uh, for another King Arthur documentary. But I won't be playing King Arthur. I'm playing Lancelot, all in the Shakespearean language. And we're filming that in the Southwest. You know, if you've got the opportunity to, to do a job, then, then you've got to do it. And it was a great honor to play King Arthur, like you just mentioned. Not once, not twice, but three times in three wow. different And Lancelot, companies. my goodness. And Lancelot, that is happening on, on Wednesday, yes. Now, there's two of your films in particular yes. coming up. You were even in Trolley, which my wife totally <laughs> loves. Trolley, by the way. Okay. Uh, but there's two of them I'm particularly looking forward to. Okay. One of them is Lawrence after Arabia. Mm -hmm. Now, Lawrence of Arabia is a very big historical figure, uh, not, I think, entirely understood by the mass of the people, though he was the subject of an epic David Lean film, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, a long time ago now, 50, more than 50 years ago now, uh, but still not entirely understood uh, properly. People know of his role in Arabia, what they don't know is Lawrence after Arabia. Without spoiling the film, give us a taster of what that's going to be about. This is going to be a great movie. Um, it's um, it's a, a labor of love from the wonderful director, Mike Griffin, that's been working on these projects for many years. And this film is going to focus on the last two years of T.E. Lawrence. And in particular, it will focus on his death. Because as we know, as you know, George T. Lawrence died, unfortunately, uh, in a, a motorcycle crash. Well, they say so, yes. Well, this is what the film will focus on. You know, for the mainstream people, this is what happened. But then on the other hand, there is a little, there is few bits of evidence here and there to, to, uh, to say that maybe uh, it could have been a job. Uh, done by the security services at the time. And I think that this film is going to focus on, on, this, on this aspect. So you'll be able to see both sides yeah. of, of the story. Well, and they've got some wonderful cast as well in this movie. People like Hugh Fraser from Poirot. Oh, you yeah. see Michael Maloney as well. That, uh, that is in that movie. The, the epilogue is Brian Cox. And the movie will come out in April 2020. And Mark the director really wanted that to happen uh, during the 75th anniversary of the death of T.E. Lawrence. I, I really can't wait for that, I must tell you. But the other uh, project that's about to come out, yes. Homeless Ashes, tell us about that. This is again another fantastic project and another labor of love from another friend of Michael Mark Zamit that's literally worked on this project for the past four years. Young director, young actor, fantastic talent. Huge following on social media too, Huge Mark Zamit. Huge following. He told me a, a thing or two about social media mm. over the last couple of years because mm. that is a, it's a very important thing to do uh, within the industry. But this Mark is a man that, that is a hardworking guy, but he's got vision, he's got target. And, uh, Within two years, he raised over 100,000 pounds on the Twiller. 
you know a bit like you had your project mm. with uh, the killing Cloud of Tony Blair yeah. yeah. when you had to do Indiegogo and Kickstarter campaigns. Mm. This is what he did, you know, with Homeless Ashes. And he raised over 100 grand for the movie. And he flew great actors from the United States to Britain. Um, leads like uh, Lou Temple that is a lead in, um, in The Walking Dead in Halloween movies. He had Maria Howell from The Color Purple. And he got these people to come to Britain to film few scenes for the movie. And, and, and this is going to be a fantastic movie that focuses on two things. Number one, homeless people. Obviously, you know, it's kind of interlinked a little bit with austerity in, in the UK, what's been happening, the rise of homeless people in the streets, and also domestic abuse, domestic violence. And it's a story of young Frankie that just leaves home uh, after a, a bad event that happened in his home, and he lives for 10, 15 years in the streets, and, and Frankie is actually played by, by Mark Zamit. And it's a very powerful drama, very powerful drama. And uh, the producer is uh, the wonderful Becca Guido. I'll be working with her and Mark Zamit again in 2021 in a very uh, fantastic uh, political period drama called Primrose. So we can talk about this later. Yeah, yeah, of course. This is a remarkable uh, life change for you at the age of 42. Now you've got a list of films and programs you're going to be in stretched out uh, ahead, of, uh, ahead of you. We're very lucky uh, that you came here to practice that art. And uh, I'm glad to say that leaving the European Union will never cut us apart. Yeah. Guillaume, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Thank you, George. Really fantastic to see you. Thank and uh, if you've enjoyed that, you'll enjoy uh, the... Uh, interview that I did with Guillaume for our television show Sputnik uh, on RT. What will Meghan and Harry do next? Join the cast of The Crown, 18%. Celebrity Big Brother, 36%. Avoid the limelight, 46%. I, come, I somehow can't see that myself. Now, you can vote on my Twitter feed. Now, Keel Jones says, I give Craig Murray credit George totally annihilates one of his points, and Craig just keeps on as if nothing happened. And Alan Harris says, when they lose, will they find another excuse to have another referendum? And Vaclouz Vanguard says, George, the SNP have failed in delivering basic services because they are dominated by socialists. Think about that, George. <laughs> I will, but not for long, <laughs> because it's absolute balderdash. Uh, NSPK77 says, I'm Belgian, and our history in the Congo is still woefully discussed in the education system or on the media. Shameful, I think you mean isn't discussed in the education system or the media. But don't worry uh, about that, because you're not the only country that hides its imperial crimes. Mario says, George wants a unified Africa, ha, ha, ha but hates the EU. Hypocrite, bro? Question mark? No. But I'll tell you what, Mario, Super Mario, here's my number, 02077 And I'll explain to you the difference between unity amongst the colonized and unity of the colonizers. I'll explain to you the difference between unity amongst the victims of empire and unity amongst the empire. Are you stupid, Mario? So call me. Come and have a go, Mario, 
if you think you're hard enough. Washington Hoax says, I miss the old days when Iraq and Iran would kill each other off with no victory. That's probably from Henry Kissinger. Let's take a call from Paris. Stephanie on the line. Stephanie, welcome. Hello. Hello, Mr. Galloway. Nice to hear from you. Two French oh, callers in a row. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I've been watching you for a while and I love your show. It's really, really impressive what you're doing. It's a job educating people. I know it's not easy at all. Thank you. Especially with, with the media, I mean, brainwashing people. I mean, I'm, I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you, I mean, I want to go ahead directly to my question. I wanted to know, how do you read, I mean, in your opinion, the Iranian response to the killing of General Soleimani? Was it proportionate to the attack, to the initial attack? And why would the Iranian notify the Iraqi before doing such... I mean, before, like, attacking them, do you really, do you really think they don't, didn't want any casualties? And is this fair? Not that I want casualties, but do you think the, the, the response of the Iranian was really fair to the Iranian people? Uh, it was definitely not proportionate. Uh, for it to be proportionate, uh, Iran would have had to have cold-bloodedly killed uh, someone of the status of General Soleimani. So the second man in the state of Iran, it would have to have been a pretty big target for it to have been proportionate. So the rest of us are quite lucky uh, that the Iranians did not respond proportionately because if they had, it's very likely that we'd be wearing tin helmets this evening whilst making this show because the world would have been at war. I'm absolutely sure that the Iranians informed the Iraqis and indeed others in sufficient time for the Americans to withdraw their personnel and move their valuable assets away from a target that they knew was going to be hit and that therefore uh, face was saved. Uh, on the Iranian side, just about, and on the American side, in not carrying through the promise that Donald Trump made, and I quote it to you, that if any American base is hit by the Iranians in retaliation for the murder of General Soleimani, we will send, without hesitation, this is all a quote, some of our $2 trillion worth of shiny hardware flying towards Iran. So, in a way, Stephanie, we're quite lucky that the Iranians know a bit more about politics and diplomacy than Donald Trump does, don't you think? I really think that it was diplomatic response, but they, they, they vowed revenge before. So do you think it was really a revenge uh, response? No, I don't think so. It's like they, I mean, it's like they, they didn't want this war at all. Like they didn't want to avenge this. So I like read it as if it's a, a weak response. I don't know. I don't want war. Of course I don't want war. This is not the purpose. No. But uh, the way I see it, you know, the mass of people, the billions and billions of people in the street during the funerals of General Soleimani, I mean, if I was Iranian, I would say, what the hell? Is this the right response? You know what I mean? 
Yeah, well, on the 40th day, uh, marking the 40th day since his murder, uh, virtually uh, the overwhelming majority of people in Iran will be on the streets again. And that will create another moment of real tension in relations between the United States and Iran. So my advice to the government of the United States is before that 40th anniversary, start talking meaningfully and properly and with respect to the Iranian leadership. And let's try and resolve uh, any outstanding problems between these two countries. Because if they don't, then it may be that the answer that was given will not be the final answer. Stephanie, thanks for the call. One woman caller followed by another and a legend at that. It's Lizzie in Gloucester. Lizzie, welcome. Hi, George. Hi. How are you? Good, thanks. Nice to hear from you. Oh, well, great. Congratulations for last night. That was amazing. You yeah. had a full house. It was a full house. Uh, in fact, there was touts trying to sell tickets <laughs> at inflated prices outside. That's, that's when, you, that's when that's... you know you've really arrived. Yeah, that's <laughs> capitalism for you. Thank you. I was, meanwhile, doing a media conference with Chris Williamson and Dr. Bob Gill, whose film, The Great NHS Heist, was just, you know... Stunning, it's a yeah. Stunning, film. absolutely, it's a yeah. Musty film. Uh, right, I wanted to talk to you about... What, what about this Tom Watson being elevated to the House of Lords? I, I think it is uh, an inexplicable betrayal by Jeremy uh, Corbyn of the victims of Tom Watson, who include, uh, and I, I, I give, I have time only to give three. The victims of Tom Watson are the victims of the Carl Beach affair, when Watson, as a matter uh, of deliberate policy, set forth the wolves on innocent people who had been falsely accused by a man, Carl Beach, who was himself the criminal that he was accusing other people of being. Secondly, uh, amongst the victims of Tom Watson are the Palestinian people on whose graves Tom Watson has danced for decades. And thirdly, the British people who were robbed in 2017 of the possibility of a Labour government led by Jeremy Corbyn, by the backstabbing treachery of the now Baron Tom Watson. No other Prime Minister or leader of the opposition would ever have put Watson into the House of Lords. So discredited an individual is he. But Jeremy Corbyn has now done so. And I think that Corbyn should be ashamed of himself. What do you think? I think absolutely. Absolutely, and I can't understand the entire narrative around anti-Semitism in the Labour Party has been portrayed um, so badly and so mis misleadingly, and Jeremy is at no point stood up and spoken out against it. Fair enough, he said... And now, and now he's en ennobled the number one practitioner of the big lie. There you go. And, and look at Becca Long-Bailey is now uh, supporting the Board of Deputies 
overseeing of the of the complaints process. How can you outsource the complaints process of the Labour Party? And nobody's asking the Conservative Party to agree to any pledges. <laughs> Unbelievable. Absolutely. Well, uh, as I said earlier, Lizzie, it, it marks the moment when the Zen approach of Jeremy Corbyn morphed into actual masochism. He is asking his enemies to beat him and then rewarding them for doing so. Lizzie, thanks for that great call. No, Mika Han says, let's not forget the very recent US overthrow of the duly elected democratic government of Bolivia by very much the same technique against Evo Morales as used against Patrice Lumumba. Quite so, thank you, Mika. Uh, Zachariah says, first of all, I'd like to thank you for your devotion to truth and justice. I'd like to add that one of the most memorable moments during the run-up to the 1991 Iraq war was the speech in the House of Commons made by the late Right Honourable Tony Benn. In my view, he was the greatest politician of the last and this century, and like yourself, a defender for peace and truth. Carry on the fight. You have my support. Amen to all of that, Zachariah. Uh, the phone system has crashed, so my apologies to Delita. She was uh, not winding me up. It's just that the phone's crashed. Alan Riley says, uh, can George explain why he thinks he should have a say on Scottish independence when anyone who phoned his show saying they had left the UK but were pro-Remain, he told them they had no say and shouldn't have any say because they have left. George, you've left Scotland, so why do you think they shouldn't have a say, but you should in the same circumstances? I don't know what you're talking about, Alan, but I'm going to solve your problem for you. I'm coming back, and you are going to have to deal with me. So put that in your Scottish nationalist pipe and smoke it. Let's see if we've got Delita back. Delita. Welcome back. We're getting her now. We've still not got her. Alexander Riddle. Hello, George. I do hope you've heard of Nairere. The, he fought for our independence here in Tanzania and helped us gain it through peaceful means from the British Empire. He is our hero here in Tanzania. I have realized you have a lot in common with him. One, he was a socialist. But the most important thing that connects you with him is the fact that you both hate disintegration of regions and countries that speak the same language. So don't give up. The unification of Britain is imperative for the success of both the British and the Scottish people. Thank you, Alexander. Not only do I know of Nareri, I met him and was very proud to do so. Delita's back. My apologies, Delita. I thought you'd hung up, but it was the system that crashed. Please go ahead. Yeah. Please go ahead. Yeah, Give us some yeah, examples of what you're talking about. Well, not really examples, but so much as if I tell you to actually just look up Project Veritas. Uh -huh. The guy who runs it is quite acclaimed. Like, he's never had a retraction like WikiLeaks has never had anyone come and say you're wrong. Okay, but what, uh, just to, because I can't do that, because I'm on the air at the moment, and yeah, neither okay. can the people who are listening. Give us some idea right. about this fascist behavior by Bernie's okay, people. So, so, so the guy, not, I'm not saying it's Bernie's fault either. Maybe, you know, he's very high up in the organisation because he's like Bernie, yeah? And these guys just work for him. 
So maybe that he doesn't, he has no idea that they're doing this. It's like Antifa. They say they're anti-fascists, yet they use fascist tactics. And people support them. And the people who support them tend to be the media who support the government, who also, like Extinction Rebellion, the government support them as well. So it tells me that well, the government know, uh, want uh, all uh, this to happen. I, I, I feel you, uh, but I'm still no wiser uh, as to what kind of things these people are doing. Can you not give us even a hint of that? Okay, well, let's put it this way, right? Tomorrow is the 20th, um, sorry, 21st, yeah? Stop mm -hmm. it, Alishka. Sorry, that's my daughter. Stop mm -hmm. it. Um, right, tomorrow something is going to happen. Not going to happen necessarily, but something is... People are very worried about something happening tomorrow because there's a big, like, Second Amendment right thing going on in, in America. And is that the, these uh, armed militia people that are marching on the Capitol? They're not armed militia. They're people who are exercising their Second Amendment rights under their constitution. To be an armed so militia. Why... To be an armed militia. Well, actually, it, it kind of is that, isn't it? Because when they, when they all well, that's got what the second, and... that's what the amendment says that the no, Amer that American the right people, the, the American people, have a right to bear arms as a militia and defend themselves from yeah. foreign and domestic enemies. Yeah. And yeah. So I'm, I'm inferring that. I'm inferring you're a strong supporter of that amendment, are you? Well, I'm not American. I'm English, but I know that we used to have that right ourselves before do you think certain we, things do you happened think we in should, this country. Do you think we should again? I think that if people did, if people knew that if something bad happened, then some, you know, somebody would have, you know, like be able to take mm. instant justice. Mm. Like, what is true natural justice? That maybe so many bad things wouldn't happen. Because wow. you cannot depend on the government to depend mm. to defend you. Well, I was that's in uh, I, I was in Dunblane yesterday, and your argument wouldn't yeah, cut much. Yeah, I know, much. and that's what happened. Your, your, that's one, what your, happened. your argument wouldn't that's cut much mustard there. That everything here. Mm -hmm. That was the incident that happened mm -hmm. that changed our rights and well, our you call it an incident. I call it, I call it the mass murder of a lot of small children in a school. Crazy person, yeah. By one crazy person, and then every yeah, person if who he, wasn't if he, crazy, if he didn't, have, didn't kill anyone, but, but got he, their right to defend themselves taken that, away. That crazy person, if he hadn't had the right to bear arms and bore several of them, uh, all those children would still be alive. Yeah, and if, if one, yeah, and how many people have died since then because other people have not had the right to defend themselves? Okay, Delita, I get you. Thank you very much indeed for calling back, especially. Let's go to another Sanders critic, Chris in Colchester. Go ahead, Chris. Hiya. Hi. Yeah, well, I just, I just think the, um, the thing about the sexism stuff is a bit of a red herring. I mean, I don't really care, to be honest, whether he's a sexist or not. I mean, he co-sponsored the bill to invade Libya. Um, which I think is just unforgivable, along with what Hillary, Hillary Clinton's involvement and Matt, and uh, mm. and the French. And you know, if you look at his record, um, he's more hawkish than than Obama was before he became president. And look how that turned out. How, uh, um, who, I, who are you backing yourself, Chris? Well, who, who are you rooting uh, for? Tulsi, I think is Tulsi Gabbard is the mm. the best of the worst. Um, you know, that's how politics is. I'm afraid no one's. No one's perfect. Um, quite so, um, quite so. I'll quit while I'm ahead uh, on that one. Uh, and when Tulsi Gabbard endorses Bernie Sanders, as I assure you she will, will you endorse him too? Never, because he, he shouldn't be forgiven for his warmongering. And, uh, you know, what? Well, you, you don't forgive Tony Blair, do you? Anthony Blair or, or Clinton. 
I don't know why you forgive forgive Bernie so easily. Uh, I, forgive, I forgive him. Uh, I forgive him to this extent. He opposed the Iraq War. He opposed the Vietnam War. He opposes the war against Iran. He stands up for the blue-collar working class in the United States of America. And he has a chance to win. His imperfections, his shortcomings, his failures, even his crimes, have to be forgiven in the context that he is the best candidate who can possibly win the presidency of the United States. That's my position. Chris, it's not that hard to understand, really, is it? Well, uh, he, he's happy to support wars when the Democrats are in power. He's against them when Recu well, Republicans are in power. That, so he's a company man. No, that's manifestly untrue because... It's not. He, well, he got arrested opposing the Democrat war against the people of Vietnam. So you've, fall, you've, you've fallen at the first hurdle. You've fallen at the first war uh, that he opposed. That, that was a long time ago. I don't uh -huh. I'm looking at his uh -huh. Well, it was. It was a long well, time he, ago. He, yeah. he, he, he voted against the Iraq war, but then he voted to fund it when, when yeah. the Democrats were in power. Right. He was fine right. when Obama... Sure. Well, that's, well, look, that's I, 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 understand, yeah, I understand your uh, point of view, uh, and that point of view guarantees that we'll get uh, Donald Trump for another four years. Good well, luck to you. I know, I don't want Trump. I don't want Trump no, either. But, but, yeah. but you're, you're rubbishing the one guy who has a chance of beating him. But Sanders What's that, where's, that me, at? Like, where's that at? I don't, Sanders, Sanders gave $1.5 to Lockheed Martin. He's not much of a blue worker, man, is he? He's, uh, he, he, he doesn't care. He's, he, he's all, he keeps on going about corporations. Mm. He's helped mm. Lockheed Martin to, to bomb people. He's a fraud, I think, and uh, a fraud. You know, Trump, Trump a fraud. I think he's a, yeah. Wow. I don't yeah. like him. I think he's worse than Trump. Really? So Chris yeah. in Colchester thinks Bernie Sanders is worse than Trump. He is the pure blue flame, is Chris. Let's go to Maryland and talk to Nestor. Nestor, welcome. Oh, hi, George. Thank you for having me. Um, welcome. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm enjoying the the conversation that's going on right now with uh, Tulsi and against Bernie and all this division that's going on. You know, I think that's all set to you know try to stop Bernie Sanders, like we saw in the the last CNN debate. We saw how blatantly they were against him. You know, they were just attack, attack, attack. And and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna have a prediction that uh, when Bernie Sanders wins the nomination. Uh, I bet you CNN will be on Trump's side attacking Bernie Sanders. And then I'm just wondering, you know, how uh, Trump supporters are going to react to that. Well, that's, uh, knowing yeah, that now the establishment. that's going to be very hard for CNN to do because actually CNN exists for really only one purpose, and that is to attack Donald Trump, isn't it? So how could they turn well, around and support him because the Democrats have picked Bernie Sanders? Well, like you, you saw Pelosi herself said that there would never be socialism in America. You, you have to understand, George, that there is some, there are, there is even people that are supposedly centrist, uh, not fully right. Uh, there's just some weird thing with uh, the word socialism and, and this, this weird fear of Bernie Sanders. And I think a lot of it has to do with 
that, you know, a lot of people want to talk that uh, Bernie isn't uh, uh, anti-war enough. Well, I think Bernie is the most anti-war candidate. And I think when the moment that Bernie Sanders becomes president and he gets the brief on the agenda of the empire, he's going to want to put an immediate stop to that. And that's something that the establishment knows, and they don't want to see that at all. They don't even want to give that a chance. So I, I guarantee him that even CNN will back Trump against Bernie, well, uh, my words. Uh, well, uh, uh, well uh, I have marked them, and we'll talk again at the very least after the election uh, has taken place. Nestor in Maryland, thank you for that. Alex is in Reading in England. Go ahead, Alex. Uh, hello, Joy. How are you doing? Good. By the grace of God, I'm fighting fit. Go ahead. I'm glad you opened by saying the grace of God. Thank so you. just our curiosity and my own political inclination, I was thinking... Uh, the, the U.S. administration faced with this um, challenge with uh, Iran, and they have uh, a clear target they would like to eliminate, whether it's arrest, kill, however they're going to go about it. Um, we don't know because Trump went straight away ahead and, uh, and, and killed him or the gun strike. How would you have suggested uh, the administration go ab about it, pending all the sanctions and all the straight up Hormuzian incident and the um, incident that happened at the Aramco South Well, uh, Alex, uh, I, I'm amazed at the premise uh, of your question. First of all, General Soleimani was a war hero, mm -hmm. not just a war right. hero for the Iranian people, but he ought to be a war hero for all of us who oppose right. the ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, fanatic extremism, because he was the hammer of this fanatic extremism. He took out more ISIS and Al-Qaeda forces and fighters than anyone else in the world. And so the number one beneficiary of the murder yes. of Soleimani is ISIS and Al-Qaeda. They were the ones celebrating in the streets. Number two, Soleimani was an accredited diplomat with a diplomatic passport who had entered an allied country, Iraq, our allied country, Iraq, right. on a diplomatic passport from a commercial flight, going through uh, passport control absolutely normally, and was on his way, according to the prime minister of our ally Iraq, to deliver a message from the Iranian government in response to a Saudi-Iraqi peace initiative. So the right. killing of Soleimani was a uh -huh. dastardly crime as well as a blunder of enormous magnitude. And we will not see the end of this story for a very long time. Alex, I need to clear you off the line because there's a okay, legend. Yeah. Okay. There's a legend okay. on the line. Yeah. It's Norma okay, in you. Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. How um, lovely to hear your voice. Well, this program is focusing my mind because my husband's in hospital. Oh, I'm sorry and, to hear uh, that. He's got lots of health complications and fever, diabetes, kidneys. So um, this program is concentrating on my mind. Good. Now, the thing is, Lizzie spoke earlier about what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, nominating uh, Tom Watson to For the, the House Lords. of Lords. Yeah. And I mean, really, um, 
I call him like mild mannered Jeremy's wrong. And this is remarkable, really, that he even thought about that. I, I don't really understand it. You no, know? and uh, he hasn't uh, explained it, I suppose, because no explanation uh, really exists beyond yeah. uh, this kind of craven masochism, uh, which seems to have taken grip of him. There can be no, absolutely no justification for Jeremy Corbyn to put Tom Watson into the House of Lords and back into British politics. You see, if he'd been just Mr. Watson running his gym and his diet company, uh, then you might never have heard of him again, Norma, but believe me, as Lord Watson, you'll be hearing plenty of him. Well, the thing I do like, though, I don't know what you think, is I quite like for Deputy Leader Richard Bergen. Well, Richard Bergen think? is a, a very fine man. He should have run for leader. He's ten yeah. times better than Rebecca Loyally Bailey, uh, and he would have a better chance to win than yeah. she does. As it happens, mm -hmm. the, as the main opposition to the Taylor's dummy, Keir Starmer, Loyally yeah. Bailey just doesn't cut it. But Bergen, Bergen is uh, an outstanding, excellent Yeah, I fellow. like him. Yeah. I mean, if, if I have my way, and it, I mean, this is just sheer silly, silliness, my Prime Minister would be Abby Martin. <laughs> yes, I'm like, in favour of that. Leader, let's, leader, let's, leader. Elect, let's elect Abby Martin as the leader of the yeah. mother of all talk shows. Norma, God bless your husband, strengthen him and return him to health. I'm sure that the thoughts of all of our viewers and listeners are with you uh, as you cope with his absence in hospital. And please don't be a stranger to us. Uh, poll 2 has closed. What will Meghan and Harry do next? A, join the cast of The Crown, 15%. It's not a bad call, that, you know. B, celebrity Big Brother, a very bad call, 35%. C, avoid the limelight. 50%. I'm amazed that half of you think that Meghan and Harry are going to disappear from view. I'm truly amazed at that. Uh, Slowpoke says America makes war with Muslim countries and where are they going to flee? To Europe, of course. You should be angry at the US. Uh, Alan says Scotland don't want independence if they want to go into the EU. How does that make sense? Exactly, Alan. You want to leave a union, a democratic union, in which you have a considerable say, in which you are actually now occupying many of the commanding heights in business, in the media, in politics, in government, in the civil service, who speak your language, and you want to leave it, and you want to join a union that speaks a hundred languages, none of which are yours, with whom you have absolutely no common history, culture, or economic interest, and which above all has absolutely no democracy within it. How is that independence? Washington hoax says if Scotland went independent, they'd be dependent on the EU. All those whiskey distilleries will be making wine. Ha ha. And Garden Gnome says, as an American, it would be a good idea to turn Frogmore 
into a McDonald's. And lessons for life, says I like the House of Lords, but it was a bit barbaric at times, especially when they ganged up on the boy with glasses. I don't know what that means. Uh, Rob says, move the House of Lords to Tehran. Not a bad idea. Tony says, the best suggestion I've heard for a second chamber is to make it like jury service. Every election, select representatives randomly from each constituency. Complex court cases are heard by ordinary people, so legislation could be understood by ordinary people. Ron says, George, the House of Lords should be sent to South Georgia. And I'm not talking about the USA. Tony says, when Corbyn was a backbencher, he either proposed or supported a motion to discuss the Bradbury Pound. When he became leader, he never mentioned it again. Jeff in Glasgow says, whilst I agree there are elements of the media that are racist, I genuinely believe that the criticism towards Meghan is fair and not racism. The fact that she has had huge issues with her own family, that she got exposed as being a hypocrite regarding her environmental preaching, yet using private jets, and the fact that she's used taxpayers' money to fund her extravagant lifestyle are all valid points to criticize her. That's from Jeff in Glasgow. Eddie Mulligan says, well done for the way you dealt with that caller from Canada. My wife and I were in Auschwitz and Birkenau a week or so back, and it was very clear that the Nazis were determined to exterminate all Jews and other minorities when they had achieved that. On Scottish independence as an Irishman, I cannot tell the Scots they can't have independence if the majority want it. Thank you for that, Eddie. The majority didn't want it. If they now do, they must have it. But there will be a battle royal. There will be a Donnybrook in Scotland over the issue of Scottish independence. And I put the nationalists on notice right now. I have joined the fray and I'm not going to go away until your plan to break up this small island is finally defeated. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time and the same place and bring another viewer, another listener with you because I'm on the trail of two million viewers for the mother of all talk shows. Thanks for joining me.